want to say welcome to those of you in the room with us as well as those who may be joining us via live stream online this morning. If we haven't had the uh, privilege of meeting, my name is Chris. I get to be one of your pastors here. And I want to just start our morning off by saying Merry Almost Christmas. We're almost there. I mean, we're, we, got, we got the place decorated uh, so, so uh, Christmassy. Carrie and her team did uh, such a, a great job. And uh, I am cognizant of the fact that there are some uh, Christmas Scrooges out there that don't want you to say Merry Christmas until the 25th. And I just want to assure you, this is a safe place. And so you can wish people Merry Christmas all month long here. In fact, right now, I want to pause. You turn to a neighbor and wish them a hearty Merry Christmas, all right? You do that right now. All right. All right, I think you guys crushed the 915. Good job, good job. Now that we are in the Christmas spirit, it's time to kick off Advent season here at New Life. If you are new to church and you don't know what the word Advent means, it comes from a Latin term, Adventus. It just means coming or arrival. And so for many centuries now, Christians have set apart typically four weeks leading up to Christmas to celebrate the first advent or the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago while also anticipating his second advent or his second coming. So it's a season of anticipation and celebration. Now I think probably for most of us to one degree or another, uh, we can relate to the idea or the feeling of waiting or anticipating something, can't we? Um, I can remember... Uh, just uh, last weekend, uh, there was a young couple in our church that got married. And so I was thinking back to uh, when Cheryl and I were, were engaged. And I, married folk, I don't know about you, but, but our engagement was a stressful season. I mean, I'm talking about the, the planning, the invite list, the menus, photographers, cakes, bridesmaids, dresses, the groom's shoes, uh, family drama, shoot me now. And it was just, it was so stressful. Like we were at each other's throats during that period of time. And, and to top it off, we were moving to a new city right afterwards. So we we're trying to figure out how to like move all of our junk and uh, get an apartment, a new place, all that kind of thing. It was just a, a, an incredibly stressful uh, season. And so while I was looking forward to the actual wedding day and seeing my bride come down the aisle, what I was really anticipating was our honeymoon. All right. Now, some of y'all are giggling. You think I'm about to get inappropriate, but I'm not. All right. We, we are in church. But let, here, here's the thing, man. It was like, it was December when we got married. And so it was cold. It was really cold. It was icy. It's like 18 degree, degrees the next day. We got up, went to the airport super early. It was nasty. And we flew down uh, to the Florida Keys and we got off the airplane and it was like 87 and sunny. And the birds were singing and the sun was shining. It was just me and my boo for a week. You know, we could sleep in every single day. We could eat seafood, all we wanted. They'd go lounge by the pool while she fed me grapes and fanned me, you know. And, uh, okay, I made that last part up, but um, it, was, it was awesome. And, and it was all about the anticipation and the, the wait was, was worth it. And that, that, that's exactly what Advent is like for the follower of Jesus. It's this idea of both celebration and anticipation of, of something that is gonna be worth it, right? That Jesus, Jesus has come and he's coming again for us and we can't wait, right? Now, this Advent season at New Life, what we're going to do for the next four weeks starting today, culminating on, on Christmas Eve, is we're going to unpack John's uh, prologue, John chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 18, culminating on Christmas Eve. Uh, just a reminder to you guys, what day is Christmas Eve on this year? Sunday. Are we going to be having 9.15 and 11 o'clock services on Christmas Eve? No, you guys are listening. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to be having our two services on Christmas Eve, our candlelight services at 3 and 5 p.m., right? So don't show up in the morning. Show up at 3, 5 p.m. It's going to be an awesome time. If you're going out of town, come to the candlelight and then go out of town. It's one of my favorite services of the year. The second thing I would ask of you is be thinking of someone or someones that you can invite. I promise you, you know people in your oikos, in your circle of influence, uh, whether they be coworkers, neighbors, friends, classmates, whatever, um, who are far from God for whatever reason. And I can promise you they will get a clear presentation of the gospel, the hope of Jesus on the 24th. So please just invite everybody uh, that you can, everybody that you know. Uh, folks usually are looking for something fun, festive, holiday-ish to do anyway, so they're likely to say yes. Um, when most of the time they might, they might say no. So it's going to be a great time. Can't wait for that. But John's gospel, first 18 verses, that's what we're going to be unpacking the next four weeks. Now, here's the really fascinating thing, uh, particularly about John's gospel. There are four biographies of Jesus' life and teachings known as the gospels, and they are written by who knows who wrote the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, a bunch of Bible scholars up in here. Now, here's the fascinating thing. None of them start with the birth of Jesus. Did you know that? Like, like they all rewind. They all go back in time to give some uh, backstory, some context to the birth of Jesus. So Luke, for instance, goes back to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the story of John the Baptist's conception. Uh, Matthew goes all the way back to um, the genealogy of Jesus. Mark goes all the way back to the, the prophet Isaiah in uh, the Old Testament. And so John, who writes his gospel last, is kind of like, hey, hey y'all boys, y'all did it all right with your context and background. Pretty good job. But watch this. In the beginning. <laughs> John is always trying to one-up his guys, man. In the beginning, right? I'm going all the way back. Y'all did all right. B plus. But I'm going to get an A plus. I'm going to give you the whole backstory. And so what I want to do is I want us to just in a moment read that together, what Ari uh, just read for us, the first five verses of John chapter one. But before we read that again, uh, shall we pause and, and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we dig into his word? Father, we, uh, we come to you, maybe especially during this Advent season as we uh, ramp up to Christmas Eve and, and Christmas Day. And I know that for a lot of us, this is the best time of the year. It's exciting. It's something that we anticipate the entire year, the lights, the songs, the food, the relationships, all of those things are, are really special, God. And, and yet, I'm also cognizant of the fact that for many people, this is a really uh, dark, uh, painful season, a reminder of, of loss, pain of different sorts. And God, so I pray that wherever we are this morning, whether this is an exciting season, whether this is a season that reminds us of hope lost or pain or suffering of some kind, that you would meet us in this moment, this time and this place and this space in history and that you would open up these ancient words to us and that your Holy Spirit would be present in a way that would illuminate our minds and our hearts and our souls so that we might receive a fresh and vibrant word from the living God of this universe. We ask for this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. John chapter one. Now what you need to know about the first five verses of John chapter one is that John is attempting to answer 
two questions. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Who is Jesus and why did he come? Now that's, a, that's an important question or those are important questions I think for each and every one of us uh, to grapple with at some point in our lives. Who, who is Jesus and why did he come? So John chapter one, we're gonna read these five verses and I'm gonna invite you to read these along with me. So let's just kind of collectively as a congregation read these aloud starting in verse one. If you don't have a copy of God's word, uh, this will be on the screens for you. John writes this. You guys read it with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, you need to know a couple of things about John as he writes this. First of all, John is uh, most likely Jesus' very best friend, right? So if you know anything about the Gospels, Jesus had the 70, then he had the 12, then he had the inner three among the 12, and then uh, then you had John, who was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so if there's anybody who's a kind of a credible eyewitness, uh, testimony to the life and teachings of Jesus, what he was about, who he was, what his message was, John is the guy, he's the source that you would go to. So you need to know that. Secondly, uh, and this is kind of unique to John, he is writing to both a Greek and a Jewish audience here. So, so when John opens the gospel with the words, in the beginning, his Jewish audience would have immediately known he was hyperlinking back to Genesis chapter one. And so what I want to do is I want to hyperlink with John back to Genesis chapter one, just briefly for a moment. So let's look on the screens. Genesis one, starting in verse one. And I want you to notice the similarities between Genesis one and John one, all right? So Genesis one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness. Underline that word darkness because we're gonna come back to that in a minute, that concept. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Underline light. There's this interaction, again, with darkness and light present in Genesis 1 and then expounded upon in John chapter 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So you need to know that the the term word that that John uses in John chapter 1 is the Greek word some of you are familiar with called logos. Here's what logos means. Logic, divine expression, spoken word, and truth. So the idea behind logos is is the mind, logic, and truth of God, right? This is a, a special term that John and some other gospel writers, but John in particular, uses reserves for Jesus in his writings, So I want to show you just a couple of instances of of John using uh, this word logos, or word, as a descriptor for Jesus. Let's look at 1 John chapter 1 first. This is what John writes in that book, another letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. And so John is saying, hey, hey, listen, guys, I'm not just just talking about theory here. I'm an eyewitness to to this word, to this logos, to this Jesus man which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the what? The word of life, the logos of life. 
Now, later on in John's life, as an older man exiled to an island reserved for uh, criminals because of his faith in Jesus Christ, God gives John this, this vision of the second advent of Jesus, or the second coming of Jesus, this time not as an innocent babe in a manger, but as the ruling and conquering king returning to rule and reign forever. So let's look at that, Revelation chapter 19. John writes this, Then I saw uh, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, speaking of Jesus here, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or like crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the what? The Word of God. The same, same idea. So John clearly is using logos as a descriptor for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, if you, if you allow me just for a second to kind of Bible nerd out on you uh, for, for a moment. The Hebrew word for logos in the, uh, in the Old Testament is memra. That's the, that's the equivalent word. And Jews oftentimes would refer to God by this term, memra, which was the equivalent for logos, because God's actual revealed name, Yahweh, was considered uh, too holy to even be uttered by human lips. And so when John goes back to Genesis 1 and he says, hey guys, listen up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is clearly saying, Jesus is God. Now, for, for the Greeks, the word that they used for the design and logic behind the universe, so the Greeks were a, a very intellectual culture, uh, very, very much steeped in sort of like the arts and sciences and logic and all those sorts of things. And so they, they very quickly realized there were all these like physical natural laws that governed reality. And so they knew that there was some design behind the world. And do you know what they called that design? The Greeks, the pagan Greeks. Logos. And so when, when John says, in the beginning was the word, logos, Jesus, both his Jewish and his Greek audience would have understood the scandalous claim that John is making here. And here's the claim that he's making. Jesus is the God who created all things. Scandalous. And yet I would argue, simultaneously, astonishingly beautiful and brimming with hope in a time and a world that's in desperate need of both beauty and hope. Now, there are countless reasons that this truth about the word, the logos, Jesus is so hopeful, I think, for, for me and for you this Advent season. And, and I, I just want to kind of pull aside a few of them and walk uh, through them with you. So let's break down these hopeful verses one by one. John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And we'll make a couple applications at the end and then we'll be done, right? So that's kind of the game plan for the morning. Now, I want you guys to read this with me again. John chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read it together. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. All right, good job. So truth number one on the screens for you. Write this down. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Now, a common mark of many cults and false religions is that they won't necessarily deny the historical existence of Jesus, they just claim that he's a created being, right? So they'll say things like, well, he was created by God at some point in time. Shoot, I remember uh, many years ago at another church that I was at, we're lead I was leading a Bible study in my home, and 
had another brother who seemed to be uh, pretty mature in the faith, and so I asked him to lead the study uh, one week, and, and he just kind of said something and just kind of walked through it, didn't even stutter, didn't even stop, and this is what he said in the Bible study. He said, when God created Jesus, and he just kept on going. I just kind of quietly stood up and walked over and took his Bible and closed it and slapped him across the face and said, you never did. No, I, I didn't do that, but there was a little part of me that died inside. So let me, just, let me just say this clearly so I never hear that again from anyone in this faith family. Let me hear me say this clearly. From eternity past to eternity future, there has never been and there will never be a time when Jesus has not or will not exist. There's never been a time. There will never come a time where Jesus has not or will not exist as king and ruler of the universe. He has always been from eternity past. One with God the Father, one with God the Spirit, God three in one. Now related to that truth is number two on the screens for you. Jesus is not only eternal, John is also saying clearly he is divine. He's clear here, right? The, the word was with God and the word was God. So let me just say this again clearly. Jesus is not from God. Jesus is not like God. Jesus is not sort of God, almost God, or not. He's not God-like. Jesus is God. He is the fullness and the essence of God himself. Fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the mystery and beauty of our great Trinitarian God. Jesus, eternal and divine. See, I think what John is getting at here is he wants us to know and he wants us to understand that the Christmas story doesn't begin with a babe swaddled in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Jesus was and is and will always be. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and in him is light and life of all mankind. Now listen, we could stop there. We could preach on that for a few minutes and just get up and sing, but we're just in verse one. So let's go to verse two. A lot, a lot more good stuff here. John continues on verse two. He says this, he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. So, so, we, so we know he's divine, he's God, he's eternal, he's always existed, he's always gonna exist. And he says he's, he's with who? With God. So, so with God the Father, with God the Spirit. Now here's why that's important. There are a lot of people today, it seems to me, that are under this impression that God created Adam and Eve, created you, created me, created humanity because God was all up in heaven for all those billions of years and he goes all alone and he got really lonely. So the picture is now God is this like needy, lonely old man with a long white beard rocking up there just begging us to accept him and be his friend so he won't die of loneliness. And I just want to say, nothing could be further from the truth. God has always existed in perfect, flawless harmony and relationship within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect, eternal, divine communion and fellowship within himself. And God has also created us as, as personal uh, beings because he's created us in his image. We are relational. And so unlike every other world religion that paints God either as an impersonal force or a distant deity, the message of the Bible is clear that God is, listen guys, he is relentlessly personal. Relentlessly personal. He is near to the downtrodden and the brokenhearted. As Alan preached about last week, he is, he is the father to the fatherless and the orphan. Provides strength for the weary. He sees our pain, feels our tears, 
He willingly steps into our darkness to redeem us and to make us whole again. And that's the third truth that I think John is really trying to drive home. Number three, Jesus is not only eternal and divine, but he's also deeply personal. Deeply personal. The story that I thought about as I was prepping this week for this message uh, was a story in John chapter eight. You guys may be familiar with it. The, the woman caught in adultery. Right? You, guys, you guys remember that story? And scholars debate about whether that text, that story was actually in the oldest manuscripts or not. But regardless, the story paints a picture of a woman who's caught in adultery. And there's this, man, this breathtaking scene where she literally is caught in the act. And these Pharisees, these kind of religious thugs, grab her uh, and, and drag her to the middle of the town square where Jesus is teaching. And they cast her in front of Jesus in an attempt to trap Jesus. And they say, hey, Jesus, the law of Moses demands that we execute this woman. What do you say? The story goes that Jesus kneels down on the ground and he begins to write something in the dust. Scholars have speculated for millennia what Jesus was actually writing in the dust. I, I don't know. I kind of like to think that he's, he's writing the sins of her accusers in the dust. I don't know what he's writing, but they begin to pester him. Jesus, what do you say? Don't you hear us? Jesus kind of casually looks up and he says, I think the one without sin should cast the first stone. And then John says, slowly, one by one, starting from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their stones and they walk away. And I just want to pick, I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. This is the height of absolute humiliation. She's been caught in this act. She's been drugged into the public square likely naked, picturing tears and snot bubbles and, you know, everything else that you can imagine, the height of humiliation. They walk away one by one, and Jesus stands up, and he looks at her, and he says, woman, has no one condemned you? She says, Lord, no, no, no one. And Jesus looks at her and utters some of the most deeply personal words maybe ever uttered. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus does a couple of things here, and this is important for us. First of all, he protects her, he saves her, he shields her, and then he calls her into a better way of life. He calls her into real life in his kingdom. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a distant, impersonal force to you? No, of course not. Jesus is deeply personal. Friend, listen, you can know him. You can have a relationship with a logos, with a creator of the entire universe. He, he has created you and he longs to have a relationship for you to know him and for you to exist and function in his kingdom as his beloved adopted son or daughter. This is an amazing truth, mind-blowing. John continues on in verse three, he says this, all things were made through him, talking about Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now here's what John is saying. Everything that exists, exists because of Jesus. He is the creative agent and force of creation. The way I like to think about it is the father is the architect, the son is the creator, the spirit is active and present. We see that in Genesis chapter one with the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. The spirit's active and present and giving life. Now, now, now watch how Paul describes it in Colossians one. He says this, talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now look at Hebrews chapter 1. Same line of thought. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom, listen to this, also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that leads right into our next truth, right from John chapter one, number four. Jesus is creator of all. He is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. I appreciate the way uh, Charles Spurgeon, English pastor in the 1800s, put it to his congregation in a sermon from, I think it was 1873, says this. The world was made by him and for him and it will remain until his great purpose of love and mercy is fully accomplished. We must not forget that even the lower orders of creation were made by Christ and for him. So the picture we're getting from the word here is that, listen guys, every speck of dust in the air, every bird that sings in the spring, every wave that kind of rhythmically laps against the shore, every laugh of a child, every bumblebee kind of hovering over a flower in the meadow in the summertime has been created by Jesus and for Jesus and as a reflection of Jesus. Every square inch of this universe shouts out that there is a personal creator and he's good. And John goes, that's right, and his name is Jesus, the Word, the Logos. He finishes with verses four and five. He says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The last truth we see here, and it's a huge one, number five, is that Jesus is light, and he is life. Now here's where I think it maybe begins to get a little personal. So let's start with life. What's Sean talking about when he says Jesus is life? It's not just physical life. I think he's aiming at something a little bit deeper than that. I would argue it's spiritual life. I think it certainly includes physical life, right? Because it's clear that Jesus created the physical world, but it's also another kind of life, namely spiritual life. That's why Jesus in John chapter three, where he has this kind of covert conversation with Nicodemus, this uh, really kind of curious, seeking uh, Pharisee who comes to Jesus and he's like, hey man, how do I, how do I get uh, into the kingdom? And, and, and Jesus basically says to him, Nicodemus, man, you, you know the scriptures and you've got the Torah memorized, front and back, like you're a religious guy, you're a good guy from a worldly perspective, but unless you're born again, it's impossible for you to see the kingdom of God. What he's saying to Nicodemus, what he's saying to you and I is, listen, we, we all experience a certain kind of birth, a physical birth, right? The day that we are born. But Jesus is saying, in order to experience my kingdom, you have to have another kind of birth, a rebirth, a spiritual birth. This is the abundant life that can't be uh, measured or quantified by stuff or money or possessions. It's deep 
soul level life. This is why, uh, for those of you who have traveled uh, much globally, like, like I've had the privilege of doing is, you, oftentimes you go to uh, other nations, developing countries, and uh, you meet fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, these uh, godly saints who are impoverished physically. Now, they don't have any of the stuff that we just talked about. They don't have the possessions. They don't have the bank account. They don't have the white picket fence. They don't have the fat 401k, none of that stuff. But what you notice very, very quickly is they have life. They, ha they have real life. They have, they have abundant life. You can see it on their faces. You can see it in how they live their lives. You can see it and how they orient their lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful. And this is why Jesus says famously in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except by me. So I want, listen, God, I, I want to say this with, um, with pastoral tenderness because I, I realize many times we have followers of Jesus in the room watching online. We also have folks that are, that are not yet followers of Jesus just kind of on the fence checking things out. But, but I want to say this clearly because I think it's important. Jesus is not a pathway to life. Jesus is the pathway to life. He is the only pathway to life. I love the way Frederick Bruner uh, says it. He says this, and I would, this would just be my plea to you. If you're, if you're here, if you're watching online, you're not, not yet a follower of Jesus. This is a good word for you. He writes this, come into union with the word, with Logos, with Jesus who made you, and you will come to life. You came from him. Please come back to him. You were made for him. The result of this reunion will be more than human existence it will be human life. Now, how many of you know that there's a big difference between existing and living? And I'm convinced so many of us, even in the church today, man, we have settled for existing instead of the abundant life that Jesus has for us. So, so many of us are just kind of resigned to, man, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to the nine to five grind and I'm going to get up and I'm just going to kind of get through life and I'm going to do this for 40 or 50 years and hopefully I have enough in my 401k so that I can, can live my, out my last few years and not starve to death and then I'm going to die. And if that's you, man, I just, I want you to know God has so much more for you. You have not been created to exist. You have been created to live to live the abundant life in his kingdom, and that pathway is only found in the Logos, the word of God, Jesus Christ himself. So that's Jesus as life, but what about Jesus as light? What, is, what does John mean by that? That Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness will not overcome him. What does that mean? I think maybe this would be an easy way to illustrate it. Um, have you ever been out in the woods? Maybe late at night on an overcast night where there's no moon, no stars. Maybe you're camping or something like that. What, what's that experience like? I think somebody just said dark. Yeah, it's dark. It's very dark. Yep. Um, man, if you've ever truly been out, like away from light pollution in the wilderness on an overcast night, um, it's 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 downright scary, right? Because it's like you you can't see you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's so dark. So it's dark, it's scary. If we're being honest, it's dangerous, right? You could 
trip over something and fall, injure yourself. There could be uh, some wild beast tracking you down and you can't see. I mean, it's, it's scary, right? And the story that I thought about, this is emblazoned in my memory growing up. I was young, maybe 10 years old, 12 years old, something like that. And I was uh, camping in a, a little tiny, like two-man uh, cabin with my cousin in, in North Alabama. And we had two little windows on that cabin and they just had a little mesh screen on them. And I woke up in the middle of the night in just like a cold panic and there was something very large, like sniffing and growling and grunting and like bumping up against the cabin. And uh, I, I knew intellectually that grizzly bears don't uh, live in Alabama, but I had figured maybe one had migrated down accidentally and, uh, and he was coming for me. And I just remember being paralyzed by fear. And I remember sitting up in my little cabin and somehow my cousin slept through the whole dadgum thing. I don't know how he did that, but I was, I was peering out this little, and it was so dark. It was one of those nights. I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't see an inch in front of my face. And I could, I could hear that thing and I could almost feel its breath on me. And it was, it was mortifying, terrifying. That's why I still sleep with a nightlight to this day, right? <laughs> Not really. I mean, who would, who would do that as an adult? I mean, silly um, but what, what does light do? What does light do? I want, you to, I want you to listen to this. This is important. Light reveals reality. Light reveals reality. Right? Because in the midst of that, that chaotic scene in the dark woods, you flip on a flashlight, and you're like, oh, man, that, that noise that I thought was a grizzly bear on the, on the hunt is actually a lizard. You know, like just scappily, he's just happily scampering over the leaves in the woods, Right? Now I can go clean my pants out, right? But the, the truth is, and what John is aiming for here, is light pierces the darkness and reveals reality. And what he's saying here, guys, is this. Jesus is the light that helps you see the world you think you understand, but you don't. Jesus is the light that helps you see the world that you think you understand, but you actually don't. Because here's the reality. There is a grizzly that lurks in the darkness of your life and my life. In the form of our own sin, the darkness of our own hearts. The scriptures speak of a real spiritual enemy that we can't see, but whom wages war against our souls and those we love. There is a real scary thing, stuff, whatever you want to say, in the darkness of life. But the good news is this. According to John, the light and life that is Jesus cannot be overcome by that darkness. He is the serpent slayer, Genesis 3.15. He's the grizzly slayer in the darkness of your own life. And if we're being honest, don't, don't we feel that darkness in this world? Don't you see it? Don't you sense it just kind of pressing in at times, maybe at times even overwhelming? Just the evil and injustice of this world marred by sin. A broken system because of our rebellion against a perfect and holy God. And if we're being really honest, don't we also sense the darkness lurking within us at times? In the form of our own flesh and desires. But in all of that, in all of that, John is reminding us, you know who's really good at walking through the darkness? You know who's like undefeated at walking through the darkness? Just for a moment, think, think about the life of Jesus, right? Just, just picture it. You kind of go back to the beginning. It's born into this, this crazy, chaotic, cold night, you know, on the run, trying to find a place in a barn around animals and filth. 
born to an unwed teenage mom. Soon after, chased from his country and everybody, his family and his friends by a madman king named Herod who was trying to kill him, lived his early childhood as a refugee in Egypt. Rejected by his friends, abandoned, betrayed by his disciples in his hour of need, tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, tortured, mocked, and murdered. And yet, in facing more darkness than any one of us could bear, he pierced the darkness and rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell forever as the light and life of all mankind. And now, and now, because of that, we too can walk out of our own darkness because he has overcome it on our behalf. In John 8, 12, we'll begin to close with this. Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's good news this Advent season. Church family, would you bow your heads with me as we begin to close out? We're gonna pray in a moment. We're gonna sing. Today, as we think about celebrating the first Advent, as we anticipate the second Advent, when Jesus comes back to finish what he started, here's the truth. I don't know where you are. Some of you are maybe spiritually on cloud nine. Man, your walk with Jesus has never been stronger. And and you've been anticipating this Advent season to really celebrate all that Jesus means to you and all he's done through time and history. But I'm pretty sure in a room this size, the number of folk that watch online every single week, there are a number of you who are walking in darkness. You find yourself in darkness today. Maybe for some of you, it's the darkness of being separated from your creator by your sin. by thinking you're a good enough person or that you can earn your way or work your way into God's favor. And yet the gracious message of scripture is that we have all sinned, every last one of us. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of a savior, a rescuer, the logos, the word, Jesus Christ himself. We are all, every last one of us in need of the light in the life of men. I don't know, maybe for you, you're walking through a season of darkness right now because of some pain or loss, sorrow, maybe some relational shrapnel wounds, betrayal, sickness, physical or mental, sickness of the soul somehow, depression, anxiety. I don't know where you are, but God does. God sees you. And if that's you, if you're walking in darkness today, I just want you to know, Jesus is the light that pierces the darkness. And you might be saying, Chris, man, I, I get it, man. Like I understand future tense, like the second advent, the second coming. Like I believe it that Jesus is gonna come back one day and he's gonna right all wrongs. He's gonna make all things new and he's gonna wipe away every tear. Like I get that, but what about now? Because in my life, it feels really dark right now. So what about now? And if that's where you're at, and I'm sure many of you are, I'd just say this. Friend, listen, we, we are living in the in-between. In between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. And know this, he will come back again and he will right all wrongs. 
And he will make all things new. And he will make all sad things come untrue. And he will wipe away every single tear and abolish every single injustice and wipe away your pain forever and ever and ever. But until that day, know this, the light still shines today and the darkness will not overcome it. The babe in a manger has pierced the darkness of our wounded hearts and the coldness of this world. And because of that one single solitary truth, hope abounds today. The Savior has come and he is coming again. Let me pray and then we're gonna worship him. God, we come to you and we are grateful that though we were hopelessly lost, separated from you because of our sin and our rebellion, when we had no way to get to you, you came to us. You left your mountain in heaven and you came into the muck and mess of our world in the form of a little baby who grew up and lived a, a perfect, holy, sinless life for every last one of us. And who died a brutal, torturous, bloody sinner's death on our behalf to pay our sin and our rebellion against that perfect and holy God. But he didn't stay dead on that third day. He rose again, offering us light and life, abundant life in his kingdom now in this life, extending through eternity. And so, Father, I just pray if there's anybody here in this room, online, watching this, who hasn't yet just waved the flag of surrender in their lives, that today would be that day where they would just confess, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm separated from you because of my rebellion and the darkness in my own soul and heart. But today I want to turn, I want to repent from my sin, I want to repent from living life my way, and I want to follow you, Jesus, for the rest of my days. I want you to send your spirit to indwell me and guide me and lead me into your kingdom and your ways. So I turn from my ways. Jesus and I embrace you. I pledge my allegiance to King Jesus now and forever. And God, for those of us who are already in your kingdom, in your lights, we've already given our lives to you, God. Would this be a season where we wouldn't be sidetracked or distracted by all the things that ultimately don't matter in the end, but that our focus the next four weeks would be on you and your beauty and your kingdom. And I pray and I ask all of this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Church family, let's stand and let's sing.